one of the skills that that is intrinsic to humans that that really computers don't really assess is you know in our conversation you can kind of look at me and and with my body language and my facial expression and the tone of my voice you can figure out is he having a good time is he worried is he relaxed is he tense um, but but we're just beginning to write programs that will kind of identify you know what your emotion might be we're just in the early stages of that journey and now what do you do with it what, you know, how would I respond if you're uncomfortable? Is, is it a simple if-then kind of programming statement? No. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today, Dr. Philip Alvalda, artificial intelligence innovator, technologist and educator, joins us from Washington, D.C., I joined Dr. Avelda overlooking the River Torrens and Adelaide Oval during Hybrid World Adelaide. Just after his mind-boggling deep dive talk on all things artificial intelligence, the inevitability and what is now possible. Please stay tuned following my interview with Dr. Avelda in today's episode for a fascinating 20-minute slice of his full talk about the amazing world of AI. Dr. Avelda is the founding CEO of Cortical AI, a US-based developer of anthropomorphic AI and machine learning tools digital twins, and synthetic personalities. We discussed Dr. Avelda's start as a funny Argentinian kid inspired by a man first landing on the moon and seated by a childhood of microscopes, models of computers, electronics kits, Lego obsession, and not getting discouraged by how science was taught at his school. This ignited a positive university experience and a love of experimentation and a career-driving technological discovery, including travelling through AI winters and more buoyant times as the support and technology started to catch up with the dream. Dr. Avelda has worked in areas from incorporating technology into our brains to communicate with each other, to developing AI to be more human, understanding context and learning from memories. How do we allow robots to be more human? And from the work of Dr. Avelda and his associates, the question is not if, but when. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Welcome today, Philip. I thank you so much for joining us. It's, um, I heard you talk earlier today and that was sort of just fascinating. And I'm going to start off right back at the beginning. What were you like as a child? Wow. Oh, I would say that uh, I was the funny uh, immigrant kid whose mother dressed him funny in high yeah. school. So, uh, you know, for me it was... Um, immigrant from where? Uh, my parents were both Argentinian and yeah, came okay. to the United States in the 40s. So what did that mean, sort of being an immigrant in America? Well, they were very conscious of, you know, coming to the country with nothing and uh, being very purposeful about finding educational opportunities and, uh, you know, learning the skills that they needed to do interesting things. Uh, mother became a lifetime academic. She was actually one of the, uh, the first women to get a Ph.D. in the United States at uh, the University of California at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, dad was an engineer, uh, ended up going to NYU in, in uh, New York. Um, and, uh, you know, spent a lifetime designing technologies and yeah. uh, industrial systems and so on. Yeah. 
So were you a studious child or a curious child or I would an adventurous say I was child? A, I was a, uh, an underachiever, <laughs> much to my parents' frustration. Uh, I would do okay in the test, but I'd never do the homework. And, of course, yeah, uh, okay. you know, then I would end up being a C student. Uh, yeah. And were you always fascinated by technology or the future, or is that just... Yeah, you know, when, when I was uh, a little, almost four years old, uh, Dad woke me up in the middle of the night and said, you have to see this, you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. And it was the first time, you know, Neil Armstrong stepped off the lunar module onto the surface of the, of the moon. Yeah. Uh, and that was a defining moment for me. And, and that really wasn't long after I had seen, uh, you know, I was three years old. My dad told my mom, uh, hey, Elsa... Uh, I have to take Philip to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. And my mom's like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> He's three years old. And my dad said, no, Elsa, this is going to define who he is. <laughs> and, and he was right. Yeah, isn't that uh, interesting? Yeah, yeah, it's been so interesting, the interviews we've had so far about often the, the, the child and the, 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 the um, I guess, the nudging parents provide and the, the little seeds that the, the parents provide. Like forms the yeah, apple, which, is, which makes complete sense, but it's not even just sort of genetics. It's actually about the experiences. Yeah, it was very much uh, a purposeful effort to just have interesting things around the house. Yeah, yeah. You know, we always had a microscope or a model of a computer or, um, you know, any kind of kit. Yeah. Uh, Heath Kit Electronics. I don't know if you remember those yeah, yeah. Uh, from the 70s. Uh, but, yeah, there was always something interesting. I, I obsessed over Legos. Yeah. Uh, had quite a collection. Yeah. Did you watch the Six Million Dollar Man? Oh, of course, <laughs> Steve Austin. Better, I was thinking stronger. on my way here today. I'm thinking, how <laughs> much would he cost today? <laughs> yes, well, probably a pretty penny more. Pretty penny more, <laughs> and we could do much more as well. What, 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 what sort of some of those sort of the critical steps you would have uh, that would have got you from that child we've talked about to the man I see in front of me today? Well, I would say um, a lot of the encouragement from my parents was to not get discouraged by the way they taught science in school because it really bore very little resemblance to what innovation or scientific exploration and discovery was like in the real world and and so I had a little bit of an unusual you know childhood that I I actually could see what it was like with my parents and that was interesting uh, you know the school part you know the road experiments the you're kind of following a recipe did you get the right answer or not that stuff didn't really interest me um, so, so I think, um, you know, the transition from me from high school into college was very formative. And, and I had, you know, wonderful experiences uh, at Cornell University uh, meeting really eminent scientists and getting to, you know, not just take classes from them, but, wor- but work from them, work with them. Um, and, and that was that, that transition from kind of faux science in school to actual science and exploration and discovery, I, I think, kind of cemented my path. Mm-hmm. And now you've sort of got, got obviously, you're, um, an eminent um, expert in your, your area. Do, do you find uh, big cultural differences between the cultures you'll talk to in terms of their attitudes towards like, the AI and driverless cars and, and many of the aspects you talk about? You know, about? Su- surprisingly, uh, I would say that I've seen more consistency yeah. uh, and regularity across cultures than I had expected. Yeah. Um, I, I think that in many ways, you know, learning how to conduct the scientific process is, is almost a great equalizer. A lot of the, the nonsense and the partisanship and the, uh, uh, you know, opinion starts to kind of res- recede against, you know, reason and experiment and, and, and evidence. Uh, 
when the scientific process is conducted well. Yeah. It can be subverted. You know, you have... Uh, and it crosses geographic boundaries. Yes, in yes. I, I think the, the bigger difference that I see is, uh, you know, how involved is a government, you know, either from a stimulus perspective where you have agencies uh, like in the United States we have uh, the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health and DARPA uh, that that you know have done amazing things to invest in and and promote scientific discovery and, and innovation to to turn those discoveries into real uh, you know new industries yeah. um, and and uh, and of course you know you see China doing a tremendous amount of that uh, you know through the development of the the uh, the solar panel manufacturing boom there and uh, seizing the the initiative with the uh, wind towers and uh, uh, windmills and so on uh, and of course most recently the announces for giant investments in artificial intelligence um, and then on the other side you know the kind of the 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 ugly stepchild, uh, you know, of, of the innovation stimulus is the regulatory piece where, uh, you know, you occasionally you have a bad actor emerge uh, and what sort of regulatory framework uh, is imposed to, to control things. Mm. Um, and, you know, this, this to me is a little bit of a double-edged sword because inevitably some technologies, while they might offer huge beneficence and, 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 and growth and capability, uh, often there's a bad actor that emerges and, and needs uh, regulation. And, uh, and of course... Are that we getting even more comfortable with the... Is there less paranoia now amongst regulators than what there was a few years ago? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think a, a good paranoid regulator is a, is a healthy regulator. You right, know, the, okay. the, the regulatory yeah. mechanism tends to break when you have a corporate interest that manages to capture the interest of that regulator and, and kind of subvert the regulatory mission. Uh, and we see that, you know, that's happened uh, several times in the U.S., uh, and there's probably a few ongoing issues there in that direction. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the good aspects of regulation, of course, and I think consider um, uh, regulation in medical devices or drugs and therapeutics, uh, this is something that, of course, is, is critical to public health, where you know you, you, the, a good, strong regulatory mechanism there prevents your life and limb, literally, uh, from from being at risk. Um, where where you know commercial interests might push a drug before it's ready or yeah. a device before it's been fully tested. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that has put the U.S. in a very strong position, but you know it's also become very bureaucratic. So the cost of going through that uh, regulatory process is very high, and it takes quite a long time. Yeah. Um, so seeing the different environments from a government perspective, you, you see a little bit more variation than, than in the scientific and development process itself. Yeah. And you must be finding there's a, a wave of investing in innovation in your space that back a few years ago, I must go through waves of... Yeah, sort of ab the, absolutely. And you've probably heard the term AI winter when, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, the first right, yeah. generation of, of technologies. And, and there, I was participating in that process. I was working on uh, neural networks and artificial intelligence back in the 80s at, the, uh, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, and that was a fantastic era where there was huge investments from the government and elsewhere. Um, and, and there was kind of modest gains. And, and it was one of those things where... It wasn't really the fault of the field. It's just computers hadn't quite advanced that much, and the sensors hadn't, you know, uh, collected enough data uh, to make material advances. And those were problems that were solved with faster computers and, and internet services and uh, better sensor and data taking systems. Um, and so now we see a little bit of a renaissance, of course, and, and big investments uh, where the tools are starting in many cases to surpass what human capabilities are. So recognizing conversation, identifying images. Um, 
but the challenge now, of course, is, is trying to take that next set of investments and going from these kind of very specialized AI applications like, you know, finding your friends' faces on Google Photo to something that's more general and capable of, of handling broader contexts and memories and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And it, I guess the, the concept of who drives change, so who gri- drives progress. So I'm assuming for the, your discussion that uh, it's, I guess, human focus. It's about making people's lives uh, better. Um, but it's it, very much from a research side, almost like the technology the ability for technology to achieve an outcome sort of catches up. So obviously there's researchers wanting to do things, but that's not just about humans needing something. It's about actually technology yeah, I, being, I, needs to be able to deliver I, that. I, so. think, I think there's a, a nice symbiosis between um, you know, people who are very driven to understand things that are inscrutable. Uh, so, you know, the neuroscientists, of course, you know, looking at the brain, trying to figure out how it does all the miraculous things it seems to do that we, that we really, up until recently, we haven't even had the instruments to peer at the brain in any meaningful way to understand how all these complex computations mm. and thoughts were happening. Um, and so you, you have this... Uh, you know, this is these are the scientists, the ones that want to discover mm. what is somehow hidden, but is is there. And you know, then there's the the duel of that, which is the engineer, which wants to create something using that knowledge that has never existed before. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there there are very different habits that drive the two types of people. Yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, you know, this is. Uh, just one more field of, of technical endeavor where you need both kinds of people yeah. to make it happen. And is that about giving permission for, I guess, that people with different ways of thinking and exploring different areas? I want to say that ec- ecosystem that needs to be... That, so that's, that, that's, that's, ec- that's exactly right. So whether and, and there's I would a say, clear commercial outcome or not... That's right. Well, I, I would say that that's a super important idea yeah. because, you know, we, we were kind of, you know, teasing it talking about scientists versus engineers. So that's kind of a, 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 a division of approach or interest or passion. Yeah. But, you know, you have the same issue of, of ecosystem and complexity. When you think of technological advance today, it's not just about computer science or neuroscience or electrical engineering or power electronics or mathematics or physics, yeah. biology, you know, regulatory compliance. You know, to make any of these new technology products, you need all of them. And so the notion of an ecosystem, like how do you develop a world-changing product now, finding a single-discipline product now is passingly rare. Uh, and, and to do really world-changing things, it really is about assembling a diverse team that can you know, contribute all the varied skills and technologies so and experiences. science and technology and engineering. You know, in a yeah. wide range of fields. Yeah. What about the, like, one of your areas of interest and passion, as I understand it, is about being... AI being more human. Can you yes. explain that a bit more? Sure. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people misunderstand the motive because, you know, when I say more human, I mean it in the sense that um, computers are very, very good and, and, in fact, much better than humans at doing very, very specific things. So many calculations, very fast. Computer, no contest. Um, and now, of course, you know, identifying faces and photos, a computer is better. You know, understanding spoken language, a computer is better. But if I asked you, you know, is your daughter ready to drive to school next week? Mm. 
computer has no hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? It requires context. What does that mean? Why, why is it important that she drives? Uh, has she not been able to drive before? Um, what sort of training does she need? Uh, you know, so you, so you have memories, experience, context of what it means to drive, when people earn a driver's license. All these types of things are built into implicit assumptions of what we discussed. And right now, our computers don't have any way to knit all of that together. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and when you say more human-like, you know, one of the skills that, that is intrinsic to humans that, that really computers don't really assess is, you know, in our conversation, you can kind of look at me and, and with my body language and my facial expression and the tone of my voice, you can figure out, is he having a good time? Is he worried? Is he relaxed? Is he tense? Um, but... But we're just beginning to write programs that will kind of identify, you know, what your emotion might be. Yeah, yeah. We're just in the early stages of that journey. And now, what do you do with it? What, you know, how would I yeah. respond if you're uncomfortable? That's wrong. Is, is it a simple if-then kind of programming statement? No. You know, we have a complex understanding mm. of what drives your motivations as, a, as a, a part of the press, what drives my motivations, you know, as a company CEO. Um, and, and, and so we, we conduct ourselves in a complex social dance that the more realistic and the more human we can make a system appreciate that, mm. even though it's synthetic, uh, then we, we widen the possibilities of yeah. how we can apply it drastically. Does that come to the point of like programming AI or uh, like, um, whether it's on your phones or robots or, or, or our driverless cars to have imperfections? That's right. Imperfections, but not dangerous imperfections. So well, you, thought, or, you hear about yeah. having ums and ahs, or yeah, but but you know, there's there's a there's an aspect of you know, does it sound realistic? But but also, you know, can you make a joke? Does it understand irony? Can it be sarcastic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, these are things that are natural to the human condition that right now are completely artificial and are easily detectable by anyone talking to a computer. Yeah. And so when we talk about making a more anthropomorphic machine or something that's more human-like, it is can we capture the broader contexts, the, the, the implications, not just the obvious statements? Yeah. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I think will really drastically change how we interact with machines. Mm. And is it sort of about, uh, we're even getting to the point now where you, you jump in your car and you go, you, you take off and it'll identify that usually at this time you're, you're, you're heading to that location. It, Will it just start to make our lives more and more easy so we'll just know what yeah, we want I, and when we want it? I, and I, think, I think that's really our goal in a way. I mean, but, but I wouldn't just say easy. I would say more accessible and yeah. lower cost and more efficient so that more people can benefit. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that people worry a lot about is, you know, oh, AI, you know, it's going to replace a lot of jobs. Well, yes, in a lot of ways. But, but in doing so, what, it, what it's going to do is it's going to make the products and services that are driven by those jobs massively less expensive, which means that everyone will have access to mm. it that didn't have access before. So I, I think that AI has an opportunity to be an unbelievable democratizer across all sorts of industries and, and make them accessible in a way that we could have never afforded to, to do before. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously sort of aspects like um, being able to use uh, advanced levels of a Siri or a driverless car, but one of the, I guess the areas in which we we work in is obviously con, uh, consumer research and behaviour change and getting people to do things. And one of the fundamental gaps that humans have is they procrastinate. They put things off. They don't do things. Right. They they really want to go to that sh that arts performance or want to go on that holiday, but they yep. just never get yep. around to it. That's so they get to the age of 60, 65. They're and, not, they're not and, distracted. And they don't get tired. Does, does AI kind of fit into that kind of context? I, I think of, it does. You know, it, it's, it's one of these things where, 
you know, you talk about efficiency and the human condition. Um, when we have the AI systems, you know, we will replace a fallible human that needs to sleep and rest and uh, can't be distracted, can't can't um, be defocused or risk dangerous situations. And you replace them with, with machines that can perform better and never suffer a distraction, don't get tired, don't need to sleep. Yeah. Uh, and and you start to realize that the efficiency gain can be just unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Well, where, when you get to um, obviously driverless cars are. A big uh, conversation, and in the work we do, we're always sort of quite surprised when we talk. We've done work for the government and and other organisations about advances in technology, and when we talk about driverless cars, this is just average, younger and older people. And we always expect they get a bit more pushback, but by and large, they see driverless cars as being inevitable. Where where do you see globally uh, the most resistance to the idea of cars going driverless? That's a good question. Um I, you know, I'm not aware of any one country that has violently opposed the idea. Uh, I think there's justifiable concern about, you know, having some role in deciding what is the right time when we decide to say, yes, okay, you know, metaphorically hand them the keys to kind of independent control of the highways. Um, and so I, I think there's still work to be done from an infrastructure perspective to make sure that that can be, you know, regulated, monitored, controlled, you know, optimized. Um, and, and that's where we see some opportunities for cortical technologies, incidentally. Yeah. Um, but, but for the most part, uh, you know, there, in the U.S., there's a little bit of variation from state to state. Uh, as you might expect, the, the states that tend to be a little more technology forward are the ones that are being more accommodating in the initial testing process. Uh, so you see a lot of work in, in California and, and Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Arizona, um, and, and uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania uh, is, is, is a city that's been uh, doing very well, uh, driven by Carnegie Mellon and, and, uh, and the universities there. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's, I think it, in many ways it's mirroring the uptake of technologies globally. Mm-hmm. You have kind of nuclei of, of early adopters that say, hey, this is really cool, it's really working, look at how the rate of accidents is dropping, you should be doing this too. Yeah, okay. And then, of course, it grows as, a, mm-hmm. as any other system. So across government and academia, commercial side. Yes, and then accept, acceptance, this is inevitable. Yeah, I think, I think goes, it is. Yeah, that, I think that, that, it is. That's great. Um, and I guess obviously from a consumer side as well, what are the, how, how, how far away are we? What, what, what's, yeah, what's, that's, a, that's a good question. I think, uh, you know, most of the credible experts in the field will say, uh, you know, most of the current vehicles on the road today, the Teslas, the, um, the early Volvo cars, etc., we're kind of at level two autonomy. And, and what that means is, you know, it, it's almost like a, a, a careful step up from a, a, a sophisticated cruise control. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, on a, on a smooth highway that's well marked... You can take your hands off the wheel for a little while, but at any time, you know, the car might become confused and beep and say, you know, drive me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to be ready for this instant transition. And that's a hard thing when, when, when you're saying something is supposed to be autonomous, even a mere level two, to immediately stop whatever else you're doing. Uh, and, of course, you know, there's already stories of people, you know, getting into the back seat and sleeping. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you put yourself at risk. Uh, now, that said, there have been some conditions where 
you know, a Tesla has driven someone to a hospital who was having a heart attack who couldn't have driven them there by, by himself. Yeah, okay. uh, so I, I think that even in the early days, we're seeing the benefits. But to get to full level five autonomy where you don't have to worry and you step into the car and there's no controls, no steering wheel or pedals, uh, and you say, you know, take me to, you know, this address in New York City, uh, you know, from Washington, D.C., and it just deals with it, uh, and then you get off on the other side. Um, most experts will say that that's probably in the 2030 range, so right, okay. you know, 12 to 15 years or so. Yeah. I was watching the news last week. There was a protest, I think it was trucking associations locally, and they were, they were saying that truck drivers are driving an average of 70 hours a week, and I recently took my daughter up to the Flinders Ranges there and back in the day, and it was about 10 hours ago. To do that every day would be insane. Yep. And I look at Australia, and I suppose other parts of the world have got differences and similarities, but the vast lands and the large sort of often very straight roads. Yeah. I would have thought in a trucking situation yeah, I mean, that would be an easy kind of one are, to sort of start There with. are great trucking applications. You know, I, I think it's important to realize that this is a kind of technology that there's not, you know, one simple transition or a singularity point where it's useless and then all of a sudden it's everywhere. Okay? Yeah, yeah. This is going to be a gradual transition where you'll actually see full autonomy in kind of more restricted environments. So, you know, your example of the truck on the straight highways from, you know, the loading dock to the distribution center, you know, that's a great great opportunity for early autonomy for that whole path. But, you know, you're, you're constraining it carefully. You're managing it. You know, we expect to see similar things in some cities. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can encourage Adelaide to, you know, head in this direction, you know, aggressively, where maybe they make special lanes for autonomous cars that, uh, you know, they have a little bit more margin for error in the early days and maybe a little bit more kind of infrastructure guidance systems where they're autonomous, you know, within constraints, you know, from one region of the city to another mm -hmm. and back. But, you know, for urban transport, that could actually satisfy some 80, 85 percent of the traffic demand. So, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the benefits will really start to become obvious, you know, piecemeal, yeah. you know, little bit by year. How, how does Adelaide and, and broader Australia compare? Like, how... How are we going in terms of driverless cars? Well, I, you know, I, I honestly, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with the local literature. And yeah. I, I just flew in yeah. the beginning of this week, okay. and I'm having great <laughs> meetings and learning about it. I, I think the thing that impresses me about South Australia is uh, how how forward not just the technologists attending the the meeting are, but the policymakers and the politicians who really are talking about you know building Adelaide as a city of the future. Uh, so however I can help uh, make that happen, I'd love to do that. Yeah, okay. So we started off as you as a child. What, what would you sort of say to someone who had school-age kids, what, what, what their priority should be moving forward? Um, I think the most important thing to preserve is a sense of curiosity. And, and I would add to that a sense of impatience. Don't wait. You can fix it. You yeah. can make it better. So and you can last, drive that change. And yeah. the last bit is a sense of empowerment. And particularly now with all the open source tools and the new technologies and platforms and hardware, you can actually start a company for almost nothing. You can have a great idea, and as long as you're curious and you keep educating yourself and you have an impatience to fix what's wrong with the world and you feel empowered to go change it, you can make great things happen. Okay. Thank you so much. What, what's the best way for people to find you on social media or Oh, online? just uh, my last name, Alvelda, at cortical.ai. I'm easy to find. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. All right, Indeed. all the best. Take care, everyone. 
What an amazing guy. Isn't it great that we have such thinkers and pioneers in the world? We are now pleased to play with permission a 20-minute slice of Dr. Avelda's hybrid world Adelaide talk on all things artificial intelligence, building human trust, and more. If you look at the whole history of human endeavor, where we began by trying to make wheels and conducting agriculture, it's been a long progression through the industrialization era and the era of information technologies. At every turn, the goal was let machines do more work so that we can do less work. Build machines in every successive era that are more efficient so that it costs less to help more people. This has been the history of innovation since the beginning of our species as a conscious being. And so I very much subscribe to the Gene Roddenberry mission of a future where we have cities where anyone can live a sustainable life with abundant food because, of course, we produce more food than all the people on Earth can eat today, but we're not quite efficient enough in how we manage it and distribute it. How we power the homes with renewable technologies, we're not quite efficient enough yet at how we collect the energy and apply it where it's needed. How we move from one place to another. These are giant global challenges. We have the technology to help everyone, but we haven't quite gotten efficient enough to solve the problem for everyone. So I think the key, the key realization that, that kind of led to my calling in this direction, and, and for me, this has been a 20-year journey, became intellectually interested in neural networks back at NASA in the 1980s, uh, building companies with new technologies in media and communications, and more recently going to DARPA to create the new neural engineering industry where we can extend what the Internet can do by connecting brains directly to computers. And, and again, I'll, I'll give you a short update on that as a teaser. But that was really a precursor to the realization that never before in human history has there been a single field of technology that could have broader impact? And the reason I think it's so important to achieve a future of abundity, of sharing, of sustainability, is this idea of efficiency in work. And never before in history has there been a technology that could have as much impact in making everything we have invented before from the wheel, to fire, to energy, to transportation, to communications, so much more efficient than it was in the last generation, as AI can offer today. So when I rethink the title of what I want to talk about, really what I think we need is more intelligence that is less artificial, but with one very, very important caveat. The goal is to apply those technologies, invent those fundamental building blocks that allow us to do this so that the machines we create are trustworthy. Now, trust. That's a very, very complicated concept. Think of all the things that relate to how do you come to trust something? How do you come to trust someone? And I'm talking to you about building machines that we can trust. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me start by asking you to now Consider trust in a framework for you that's familiar. Let's, let's develop some common language so that we can then think about what it means not just to trust a person, 
but similarly to trust a machine. And what might that require? So look at this less than one-year-old computer. This computer, without too much supervised training up to its first year, already is showing high intellect. So great capability to control its gaze, to focus on something, to see that something important is happening, to move its arm, recognize things. But there's a really important piece that when we talk about machine intelligence, so far it's been left out of the conversation entirely. Look at the concern. There's an ability to, A, yes, detect emotion of another, detect that because someone is having an emotional problem next door, something bad might be happening. But the expression of concern, this notion of empathy, well, we haven't built a computer that really, you know, my old uh, thesis advisor at MIT, Marvin Minsky, uh, you know, one of the forefathers of artificial intelligence, he had a famous quote that said, no one has ever designed a machine that was ever aware of what it was doing. And then he kind of turns and kind of chuckles and goes, yeah, but most of the time we aren't either. <laughs> but look, this baby is completely aware that the other baby's having a bad day. Now, how do I make a machine that expresses these kind of complicated abstract ideas? Concern, emotion, empathy, trust. You know, today, for the most part, uh, you know, you get an algorithm and you say, oh, shit, we need a trust parameter. And that probably depends on, uh, I don't know, some, uh, you start typing and coding. And, and it seems so far from the notion of what humans embody for these abstractions, how do we bridge that gap? Well, let's think about what that, that idea of trust means. So for that, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the idea of intellectual quotient, intelligence, capability, but also the emotional intelligence aspect, the EQ. What are those things that we can talk about with regards to those in our own experiences? So who's had a moment like this? You're a parent, you're interviewing a babysitter or a nanny, she's hoping the kid won't barf on her lap, parents kind of concerned that the new kid isn't going to be dropped. How do you, as the parent, evaluate whether or not to trust this person with your child? How do you interview them? What cues do you look for? What becomes important to you? And when is that moment where all of a sudden you go, yeah, okay, we can go out to dinner tonight and our kid probably is not going to, you know, really suffer egregious harm. Obviously, there's a, there's a capability, there's a training aspect you know, can they hold the kid without dropping them? Are they too clumsy? Okay, we can build robots that can hold things, and that's not too much of a worry. There's probably a couple of other really important things besides capability, though. One is foresight. If Junior's crawling across the floor headed towards the electrical socket, is she paying attention? Would she pay attention and notice that something bad was about to happen and scoop the kid up beforehand? So anticipation of future consequences. Do you believe that she has the ability to have good judgment with respect to future consequences? Does she have the capability to mitigate them if something bad happens? You ask her questions. Have you been certified in child CPR? And at some point, 
You say, okay, we have enough common experience. I know you've been to a school. I checked your references, you know, talked to some families. And now, okay, we will trust you with our child. And we all hope for, you know, Sister Mary. But we're not sure until that moment. And then we try and we hope it goes well. Now, here's another situation. This one happened to me just last week. My 16-year-old daughter got her learner's permit and is ready for the keys to the car. What do you do before you trust her to be in control of 2,000 pounds of steel going at 75 miles an hour? Well, you, you probably sent her to some sort of driver's education class. She's taken a test. You had to study for it. Uh, and, and all of us who have been through the process, you know, you remember those white-knuckle rides around the parking lot the first few times where you're testing her capability. Can she control the vehicle? Does she, can she respond to emergency situations? Can she change a tire if she's stuck somewhere? So you, you go through making sure that she understands all those things. But there's another piece that's harder. And a lot of my friends, you know, different kids, different timing. Is she mature enough for the responsibility to take the car? Can I trust her judgment that when she's in the car with her friends and they're having fun and the stereo is turned up, uh, everyone's excited after a late night at a party, that she's not going to go too fast and run off the road and hit a tree like some of her friends actually did last year and died? So that moment of trust, it has life and death consequences for your kid, for other kids. And being sure that you can trust her is a profound moment that requires more than just capability testing. It requires social context. It requires knowledge of consequences. It requires really deeply held understanding of complex abstractions. So let me ask you, how many of you today would trust a robot school bus that pulls up in front of your house and, you know, ready to go to school? Who'd send their kid this morning? Anyone? No? A couple people in the back? Three, five, maybe, maybe 2% of the people here? Come on. What's so bad? I mean, it's friendly. It'll say, hey, Finley, come on board. We could even use a cartoon voice. So this issue of trust is profound. Now, would it comfort you at all to know that the statistics of the self-driving cars show that they have much fewer accidents per mile driven than human-driven cars? They don't, go to, they don't go to sleep. They don't talk on a cell phone. They don't text. They'll obey every traffic law, probably to aggravation at some point when we start driving in them. But we don't trust them yet. Why? Okay, maybe not the school bus. How about a radiogram in a hospital? In this picture, who would you trust more? Would you trust the surgeon who's at the top of his field? This is actually a Stanford radiologist. He's, he's probably the best radiologist on the West Coast. Or would you trust the two Stanford students standing behind him who programmed an algorithm over two months to detect flu and tuberculosis and other diseases just from the radiogram scans. Who would you trust? Radiologist? Okay, good percentage. S students? An algorithm? Well, you know what? In this case, the students are ahead. 
Their algorithm, with no medical school, no common history, no training in medicine whatsoever, built a deep learning system that would look at the radiograms and do a better diagnostic job than the radiologist at the top of his field. But we don't trust him because it's a machine. We can't talk to it. Underlying all of these things, all underlying all of these issues, and I haven't even brought it up yet, is an implicit assumption. In order to evaluate whether you trust someone or not, you have to be able to communicate with them. They have to speak a language that you understand. If you ask an AI algorithm today, should I trust how you made your radiological decision for my you know, medical intervention that's going to cost thousands of dollars and poison me probably a little bit and, and maybe kill me, uh, hopefully help me, you have a conversation with the doctor to decide whether you trust him. He says in English, in layman's terms. He tries to make it simple. He tries to outline the risk. But you have a conversation in common language. We don't have that with our machines yet. We don't have a common language. You know, if you ask a neural network or deep learning or convolutional network theory, all the buzzwords of, of current AI technologies, you know, the kind of answer that comes back is, well, we've got a matrix of 10,000 parameters and 70,000 metavariables that we set, and this is the matrix of weights that made that decision. Can you trust that? I have no idea what that means. And I'm an expert in the field. So clearly there's a gap. How about this one? Your cancer surgery. This is the Da Vinci robotic surgeon. Who would, want, who would rather have this operate on them than a flesh and blood surgeon at the top of their game? Robot? Surgeon. Okay? The robot is winning. Now, today, the surgeon is still involved in using the robot, but, but look at what a surgery looks like. You know, the people are there, but they're not tending the patient. They're tending the robot who's tending the patient. And when the robot needs to do a stitch, the doctor goes, stitch. And the robot goes, and does a perfect stitch. The human is doing less and less and less and less, and the robot is doing more and more and more. But again, you look at the creepy thing with all the arms, and you're like, whoa, wait a second, I don't know if I should trust it. I can't have a conversation with the robot, I can have a conversation with the human. It won't be five years before you don't need the surgeon in most surgeries. Probably have one standing by in case something weird happens. But for most routine surgeries, you won't need the doctor as a human. So I saw all of these things. And the, the realization to me was that this notion of trust and the underpinning technologies that would allow us to begin to understand what a machine is doing, to have a conversation with it, to trust it, was really the crux of advancing AI into a common tool that could solve broad-scale world challenges. And so I started the company, Cortical.ai, because the work at DARPA gave me a very unusual perspective. It gave me the perspective of sitting at the top of the technology food chain in the world and getting access not just to the products that people had released just then, but to the things that they could contemplate might come about with a concentrated effort in about 10 or 20 years. We're looking at a 10 or 20 year technology horizon. And the technologies we developed to interface brains directly to computers and control things was profound. And we learned new things about how the brain was doing things like trusting people, managing abstractions, that we now can apply to AI. And so we believe that our mission as a company at Cortical is to build a platform to develop synthetic personalities that you can trust 
and apply them to global challenges. Now, I'll, I'll give you a quick update for the people that were here last year. You'll remember that this whole notion of connecting brains directly to computers started at DARPA back in 2005. This is Jan Sherman, uh, who is a quadriplegic patient, uh, paralyzed from the neck down. And she has a brain implant in her motor cortex that allows her to control this robotic arm as if it was her own. That was the beginning of the DARPA journey. I came to DARPA to do the next generation interface, which would be fully implantable, fully wireless, and have such high bandwidth that you could not only do simple control, but you could also interface to speech and hearing and write vision sensations directly into the brain. And so I want to give you a quick update. Since that work started two years ago, we have now had several of the six teams that we funded achieve their first-generation milestones and implants. This is just one of the examples from Rice University uh, and, uh, and Yale, where they have built a fully implantable brain interface. So you can write into neurons and cause them to fire and write patterns into them, and you can read out from them. And the fascinating thing is, it's so small. If you look on the, on the left side there, you can see there's a, a tiny little uh, kind of flexible blue piece. Okay? That is actually the interface. It is a, piece of sing a single piece of silicon. It's thinned with advanced technologies to the, the consistency of a tissue paper. And the way you implant it is you open up the skull, you lay the tissue on the surface of the brain, and then you close the skull up over it. And just like the cochlear implants uh, for, for deaf people, you have a, a tiny little uh, kind of skin relay that's magnetically attached on the, on, over the skull, and you have a complete brain implant which can look and watch visually, optically, to see neurons firing in all of their complexity. And so we've now built these tools. We've implanted them successfully in uh, rodents, in near-human primates, uh, and within a year and a half to two years, they will be operating in their first human patients. Working to cure deafness, blindness, and aphasia, the locked-in syndrome where you can't speak but are conscious. And so it was using tools like these that we began to parcel out the code of how vision is represented in the brain, how hearing is represented in the brain, how all these computations are done. And we were able to take those ideas and realize that our dream of interfacing with the brain, of writing into it, might not be just a technologist's wet dream. I mean, what do you think? Is this idea of seeing out of someone's eyes too alien? If I had an implant and you had an implant, could you say, hey, I wasn't able to make it to my daughter's recital, honey. Can you turn on the implant so I can watch? Well, we found validation in the most unusual place. We found this, uh, this twin, this congenital uh, conjoined twins, where they have one large skull, but they each have an individual brain within that one skull. And this is a, an outtake from a, a BBC, or sorry, a, a Canadian broadcast uh, documentary about them. So listen. I'm going to do this for Krista first. Krista, going to sh shut your eyes? I could have never imagined, you know, they were going to do anything that they can do now. There's nobody in the world that's connected the same way that they are. I'm going to touch somewhere on Sissy. You go tell me where it is, okay? Oh, gee. 
Yep. Now where? Due to their connection, they're able to feel what the other child feels. <laughs> Doing what we normally do with them, just seeing what sensories are actually still working and active and just having a little bit of fun. Now where am I touching? Oh, uh, yeah. Very good. Now where am I touching? Uh, her nose. Very good. They're even able to see through each other's eyes. What color is it? Purple and white. You got purple. It actually takes a lot more effort for them to see things through each other's eyes than it does to feel things. Okay. A bat? Nope. Can't Can't see it? Taddy, can you tell me what color this is? Pink. Very good. So, of course, when we saw this documentary, we said, okay, what's going on? You know, what, what's happening inside the skull? So this is an x-ray of the skull. You can see one giant volume. But then you look at the fMRI of the brain, and you can see that tiny red arrow, that line. It shows a connection between the two different brain stems into the part of the brain called the thalamus. And it's through about two million neurons... Just two million. Two million neurons that they can convey emotion, awareness, sensation, sight, vision, hearing. We now have a blueprint for a direct interface from one brain to another. Now it's only a matter of time as we make the hardware more miniaturized, more easily implantable and we can have telepathic communication, not just of vision, but all of our cognitive awareness. Imagine that future. Not a matter of if, a matter of when. Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, you can find the amazing full 59-minute video talk of Dr. Philip Avelda on hybridworldadelaide.org or searching YouTube where you can also find Hybrid World Adelaide 2018 talks, including Professor Genevieve Bell, Robert Turchek, and Dr. Crystal Johnson from NASA. Please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centred, customer-focused, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony, and Suet Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Hooroo. Right.